Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and in a slightly unusual but nonetheless very, very exciting episode, we're joined today by Louis Theroux, the documentary filmmaker, journalist, broadcaster, national treasure, I'd go as far to say, and latterly podcast host. Louis joined us notionally to talk about the release of a new documentary he's making. It's about Joe Exotic, who you'll remember, of course, as the star of last year's Netflix documentary, The Tiger King. This is enthralling stuff on its own, but the conversation soon becomes about so much more. About the state of America right now, about the trouble with social media, the poignancy of shooting horses, the perils of podcast cosiness, and the very art of interviewing itself. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Hi, Louis. Nice to meet you. Thanks very much for, for joining us here. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Joe. Nice to meet you. We just started off with some mic issues, which is very authentic. Very podcasty, isn't it? Are you going to keep those in, do you think? We could do. That's what you would do, wouldn't it? You'd keep those in. We would probably keep a few of those in and then interweave some sort of introduction and some music around the, the testing of the mic. It's all about having the little bits that you don't normally include to, to create well, a more authentic feeling for how the conversation took place and actually blur the edges between performance and reality, which is kind of what I've been trying to do in the documentary genre from from way back when I first started in 1994. Other people are now kind of pinching that idea. I think of the masterclass kind of style of documentary, the American style, where they'll begin each interviewee adjusting their lapel mic kind of before recording. How do you feel about that? That seems like it's kind of eating into your pie a bit. I think a lot of people are doing similar sorts of things. And I've been thinking about how you bring a greater honesty to um, to television making or podcast making, whatever it happens to be. And I think, you know, going back years, when I used to watch TV as a child, I found it very exciting when you saw things that you th- thought you probably weren't supposed to mm-hmm. see like if on blue peter the elephant ran amok and you suddenly yeah. saw all the cameras and the edge of the studio and you thought wow this is incredible like this is the bit you're not supposed to see and then people like kenny everett would sort of run around on the set yeah. and and break the fourth wall or in different ways show you behind the scenes and 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 so in a funny way i've i've, I've sort of always seen what i do in certain respects as a continuation of of that, and I can't lay any claim to really pioneering or innovating any of that. It was something I just—it was one of the—it was just one of the ingredients that I added and put my own, you know, accent on, I suppose. 
And, um, you know, it's you just have to be wary of it becoming a cliche or yeah. overly self-involved or tail chasing because there's a fine line between intriguingly quirky and sort of tedious and self-indulgent. Like you do need some meat in the meta sandwich. Exactly. I just coined that phrase. And that's very apropos for our conversation because I'm, you know, the, the, the notional peg for our conversation is... Um, I've got this film coming out, 90-minute TV program on BBC Two called Shooting Joe Exotic, which is the story of... I'm sort of taking control of the conversation. Is that all right, Joe? I've just sort of wrested control Louis, of the it makes my job remarkably easy. <laughs> so okay, you can good. take control all you like. I can steer and prod. All right, we can I go want. back into whatever you want about. But while we're on the subject, you know, the story and then the story of the story, right? Yeah. And um, I, you know, I've never wanted to be one of those people who's like, oh, I couldn't reach the person. So this is the story of me not getting the story. Like I've always yeah. wanted there to be solid access in the middle of whatever story I happen to be telling. But around that, I think the way in which you approach the subject, the way in which you there are setbacks or you come across different ways or just the strange way in which conversations take place, like I think is, is always something that you might think about including. Yeah. And it, so with Joe Exotic which is the subject of shooting Joe Exotic, you've got both the story of, of Joe Exotic himself and the fact that he, you know, became increasingly obsessed with Carol Baskin, this animal rights activist who he perceived as his nemesis, and then to the point of plotting her murder and then mm. being sentenced to 22 years in prison for that. But then you've also got this sort of meta story, which I suppose is the fact that... Um, he went on to be the star of a Netflix series and that that became a phenomenon in its own right. And yeah. then I'm sort of jostling for a little room at the trough in a sense of being one of the people kind of trying to tell that story. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just a very small piglet at that particular trough because they're obviously a vast entertainment conglomerate and they've got a huge hit series and they're trying to make Tiger So while I was there, they were making Tiger King 2 and I was there trying to make my follow-up program and that becomes part of the story. It's interesting in that meta sense, the kind of um, the phenomenon around Tiger King that, that you speak about. It was the first big kind of shared event of the pandemic. It was, it was very quickly a cliche to say, oh, have you seen Tiger King yet? But it strikes me that it's quite odd because it is very far from classic comfort viewing escapism. It's kind of distressing and disturbing and there's a lot of depressing and dark aspects to it. Why do you think it kind of enthralled people? And why do you think Joe Exotic intrigued people so much when probably they might have rather watch, I don't know, Antiques Roadshow or something? Well, it's not escape. It's not escapist TV in the classic sense of comfort television yeah. or The Mandalorian, you know, or choose the sci-fi series or indeed, you know, some James Herriot thing or what, you know, but it has, I think what they were smart about was they um, made it more approachable by foregrounding the exotic, no pun intended qualities of the contributors as well as the animals. Mm. So they seemed sort of cartoonish, many of the people. I think also, yeah, when you think about it, it's pretty dark. But having said that, no one had to think about uh, any people dying. Like Carol Baskin did not die. 
Yeah. Um, it was a failed murder hire plot. And I think there were aspects of the animal abuse that they chose to um, not put so much emphasis on. And as a result, made it more palatable to a wider audience. So for example, like there's footage that Joe's made no secret of that he put on his TV show of Joe shooting a horse which we're in, you know, we haven't finished our final cut, but in the cut as it exists at the moment, we've got, we've put in um, footage of Joe shooting a horse because it sort of speaks to aspects of who he is. Yeah. is it, the horse is sick, we're told, which I have no reason to doubt, but it's quite an extraordinary and upsetting thing to see Joe just walk up and say, I, I am perfectly sane. Um, and then he walks up and shoots the horse in the head and then yeah. the horse falls to the ground and twitches on the ground. You know, Tiger King didn't put that in because I think they thought, well, that sort of breaks the spell. Yeah. Of Joe as a um, sort of lovable, charismatic human car crash. I mean, I may be reaching here, but there's kind of a, is there a canon in literature of people killing horses? Doesn't someone in Animal Farm, doesn't the, the horse boxer get very tragically killed? Is it, I'm just, I may be adding a bit of too Well, much. I love that literary reference. Yeah. Certainly boxer gets taken off as a metaphor for the Soviet worker and turned mm. into glue. And then I think in in the at the end of uh, Crime and Punishment, does Raskolnikov break down because he sees a horse being whipped? Yes. And famously, Friedrich Nietzsche, when he had this sort of incipient uh, mental illness, had his final cataclysmic sort of psychotic break when he saw a horse being whipped in the street wow. and flung his arms around it to protect it. There you go. So there's clearly some kind of psyche with us. And, the you know, Gulliver's Travels, the Huynims, who represent the archetype of a kind of um, rational creature, like a, a, a creature that behaves... In, in, in contradistinction to the brutish yahoos who look like hairy humans, the Huynims are horse creatures. Right. And so I think it, yeah, you're, it's deeply symbolic. Like we have a, you know, we, we hold horses in certain cultural ways in a very high regard. And there's, a, there's prejudices against eating horses, in, you know, certainly in our yeah. country. Anyway, we're getting quite far away from Joe, but I think that's an interesting point. Like, I, and it's a really hard one for us as program makers to know the right way to handle the footage. Like, I'm not trying to contribute to the desecration of the horse or try and in any way insensitively or inconsiderately display like this act of what appears to be kind of horrendous killing. But... You know, when you're talking about animal cruelty, you sort of, um, you know, there's a case for seeing some animal cruelty, right? Of course. He's, he's an, um, as you say, he's got his own TV show and he's a great image maker himself. He's very aware of his own brand and his own kind of mythology. Did, was your approach to that slightly different to the, to the Netflix show in some way? Did you, I don't know, did they contribute to that mythology and put a different sheen on it, do you think? Or maybe make it look slightly more, as you say, cartoonish? I think anyone who was in the orbit of Joe Exotic couldn't help but amplify his voice, you know, and amplify his charisma in some way. And in going back, 
I had the blessing and the curse of not really having access to Joe. He's in prison. I mean, I, I interviewed his um, his lawyer and the, who's running, who's helping to run the campaign to have Joe pardoned. I also obviously have a ton of material from 2011. And I should say just in passing, in 2011, we had originally, at least for a while, conceived of doing a two-part series all about Joe Exotic. Like when I saw him and I thought, wow, this guy's extraordinary. Yeah, He's in a three-way relationship with two other guys. Um, they live in, a, in rural Oklahoma with 150 tigers. Um, he's got an obsession with Carol Baskin. There's, there's guns everywhere. I thought th this is, you know, this vast zoo with more than a thousand animals. I thought this is too big to be just a little piece of a documentary about um, America's most dangerous animals or, you know, most dangerous pets. So, and then we abandoned that for various reasons. But so we have a lot of footage that's never been seen before that helps you understand Joe and where he came from. So the question was about, was I conscious of sort of the responsibility of, you know, in, in any way catering to or augmenting his myth? Well, very much so. And I think that's the reality we now live in is a world in which his phenomenon has been supersized. Yeah. You know, halfway through the film, this 90 minute film, the first 45 minutes is how he came to be increasingly obsessed with Carol Baskin to the point of plotting her murder and then gets convicted for 22 years in prison plus animal rights convictions. The second, and then Tiger King happens and suddenly everyone loves Joe and many people seem to hate Carol Baskin. The story's kind of turned on its head in a funny way. So that's the world we're living in. And to some extent, the film is an examination of how that's taken place and where it has led to. When you've got someone who's got a real kind of force of personality and I guess a self-awareness in many ways, how, how do you safeguard against them using you and the crew and, and the, the documentary format as a kind of vehicle for their own spin and their own agenda? How do you stop people hijacking your project in a way? Uh, ask good questions, right? Mm. You've got a challenge. You've got to um, attempt to tease out the truth. I mean, that's basically the job. Yeah. If people were um, just telling you the truth or able to sort of unpack their own complexities unaided, like there'd be really no need for any journalists, you know, right. certainly of the type <laughs> that I am. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's very so that's sort of the, that's the job. You go in, you, you try and figure out what's going on. And to some extent, the, um, the cut and thrust of how that process takes place is what's interesting and and um and i don't mean it to sound overly adversarial but there's a part of it that you know in the in the kind of programs that i make where um i'm trying to get people to give up the goods and some of that's kind of a um an attempt to just through rapport building create the trust that allows people to express more of themselves or by um asking kind of um, well-timed questions or sometimes by needling and provoking a little bit, you know, which, how, or just by filming long days and attempting to create the conditions in which the truth comes out and people reveal more of themselves. It's a very um, American story, isn't it? You can't really imagine this taking place 
in Surrey or something for obvious reasons. No, although I recently read that Ross Kemp is doing a similar project about big cat owners in the UK. Wow. But it's hard to imagine he'll find a Joe Exotic. He'll, he, no. I'm sure he'll find some intriguing personalities, but but the idea of a um, a gun-toting, mullet-wearing, nipple-pierced, and apparently he's got a penis or whatever. Is it a Prince Albert is the technical term? It might be, yeah. And he's, you know, the idea of all those boxes that he ticks of eccentricity or flamboyance, yeah. That, I mean, it's just, it's a... Even in America, it's not like there's many Joe Exotics, right? No. He seems a kind of... I mean, if you wrote a character like that, your editor might tell you to turn it down a bit. He seems an on-the-nose bundle of right-now Americana and all its shouty eccentricities and kind of contradictions. Right, exactly. And I think... um, And the parallels with Trump are interesting. I think the part of Joe that's maybe misunderstood and which I noticed especially going back over the older material was the vulnerability, but the extent to which his vulnerability, his, his sort of um, fragile qualities gave him a kind of power because if you were in his orbit, you, you know, it was hard not to be charmed by him, but in the yeah. same time that meant in different ways, sort of trying to keep him together, right? Supporting him and being aware that he was thin skinned and, and, you know, tiptoeing around him. I saw a similar quality when I spent time with Ike Turner, um, yeah. Tina Turner's ex-husband, where who's dead now, but he, you know, he'd been depicted as sort of flamboyant and violent. And to some extent that's the case, but really his main quality was this extremely thin skin mm. that meant when you were with him, you tiptoed around him because you know you knew that anything, even innocent or or questions that you thought were sensitively phrased were liable to cause offence. Joe wasn't to that degree, but I was conscious that he wasn't robust in the way that many big personalities are, right? Yeah. And by the end of the eight or nine days I spent with him, I had, I'd had i sort of run out of road with him. He, he was fed up. He, he thought I'd asked too many questions about animal rights. And I remember on the, you know, for the last two or three days, as I recall, I have hardly spent any time with him. He was keeping to himself. And I remember saying to my director, Jamie, Jamie Pickup, I said, like, we just need to have one more decent conversation with Joe. Like for this, he's like, Jamie said, what do we need? I said, we need a one more, like, we just need to get it on the table, have like a real, a sort of solid, substantive conversation about why do you breed? Are your animals happy in their cages? What is your reason for doing this? What does quality of life mean for a tiger or a chimpanzee? So Jamie's like, okay, so we got... Joe out, and we run a bit of that interview in the in in this new program in this new film. And what was striking wasn't so much that he, Joe got upset, which he did. Like he actually got into a half ripped off his mic and told me to go fuck myself. Wow, fine. I remembered that, but what I hadn't remembered was then after that we talk a bit more. He comes back, and then I ask him if I can have a hug. Wow. And I reflect on it in the film, which is how odd that is. Like it's not every day that I interview someone and then. At the end, I seem to need a hug from him to make sure he's okay, right? And I think that it says something about his um, how uh, he he was able to solicit those feelings of protectiveness in all of the people around him. So you felt that you needed the hug as much as he did. 
I needed the hug. He didn't, he didn't even want a hug. Like I go in for the hug and then you can see he's like, he's kind of tolerating it. I say, I say, can we, are we buds again? He goes like, I don't know, something like that. I said, can I have a hug? And I go over and hug him. He tweeted about you last week about the documentary. I assume you've seen that. Of course. I've seen a few. I, he's tweeted like, you know, he got in touch with me. Like he got in touch with me last year. Why, have I already said this? I've done a few interviews. I'm losing <laughs> no, track. not yet. It's okay. Um, so last year he got in touch with me via someone who'd written to him saying, please reach out to Louis through. I need him to come back and tell the real story. So after that, we exchanged a few messages and then he, he stopped replying. I can't remember what happened. We, anyway, we fell out of contact and, um, you know, okay. So his Twitter account is run by a person that I think he speaks to on the phone from yeah. prison. So is it his are they his tweets more or less yes um he's tweeted a bit about he's fed up with the makers of Tiger King and he feels that they are impeding his ability to tell the real story right and um so I find that interesting because he signed a life rights agreement with Tiger King mm. And so he's actually legally not allowed to cooperate with any other documentary. So as I understand, it, he tw he tweeted last week, sort of saying everyone's making money off me. Was that the one last week? The uh, the one I saw was when he said your documentary was chicken shit. I think and said he took a took. Uh, I think he didn't like the fact that there was the word cult used about him. Yeah, cult. By the way, I wasn't a fan of that title. We're not using that title. Oh, okay. The title is going to be shooting Joe Exotic. Yeah. Which to me is more apropos, like. The term cult is so overused and so inflammatory. I don't even think it's helpful. I avoid that term. I mean, I get why it came up. It's like, right, he had a lot of people living at his park. They worked long hours. He had a kind of mystique and a charisma around him. But I've done programs at cults, what would more and more typically be known as cults. And, you know, that quality of being ultra controlling yeah. to the point where you, you are aware as a media entity that you're... Um, every encounter is being stage managed, right? And people are, are working to a script. That was not the case yeah. with Joe and the GW uh, Zoo. The cult of personality, I think, is is on message. And the idea that now there's a cult following for yeah. Tiger King and then all of that sort of fits the bill, I suppose. But shooting Joe Exotic, to me, is a better title because it's about, um, well, he shoots animals, has shot animals, but more importantly, he's been um, involved in a parade of people who've shot him, shot video of him mm. and the responsibility that they have and that I carry in shooting Joe Exotic is sort of an interesting idea to explore. Absolutely. I think I just, that was so self-evident. I went to all that trouble of explaining it, but I'm sure <laughs> you could have figured that out on your own. <laughs> Sorry about that. I wanted to ask you a bit about the kind of American and Trump parallels, because obviously you're, half American, you've spent huge amounts of your working life in America. And the kind of easy, lazy point of view, especially from this side of the pond, is that it's never been a more divided or worse or more difficult time to be in America. Is that the sense you get when you when you go there, when you speak to people there, being intimately involved in it in a kind of family sense? Do you think that's a fair characterization? Okay, interesting question. In passing, I'd like to acknowledge that slightly eerie parallels between the sort of Trump versus Hillary Clinton kind of um, duality 
that was, you know, that existed in the 2016 presidential race and the sort of Joe Exotic, Carol Baskin situation where you've got a kind of rather shameless but charismatic um, and flamboyant man with weird hair who who, who seems uh, kind of have this unlikely hold over vast numbers of people. And then you've got this on paper kind of more responsible, um, more correct, uh, more thoughtful person who, for some reason, viewed as sort of censorious and 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 pious and 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 irritating, right? And and rather unfairly, I think I would submit. So you know, in going back, that was very much a paradigm that I had in mind. And I think the way in which people trolled Hillary Clinton, you know, accusing her and her cronies, not her, 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 um, her people in her circle, her political allies, as being involved in paedophilia and child sex trafficking and Pizzagate and all of that, yeah. in a way has its analog, like here in, in the Tiger King world, where as a result of the series, um, Carol Baskin has endured an enormous amount of trolling. Like when the series went out for days, weeks, maybe even months afterwards, Round the clock, she was getting death threats. Yeah. So uh, the yeah the divisiveness or the dividedness of America is sort of inscribed in the dynamics of the Tiger King story. Uh, I think the harder question to answer is w- whether it's much worse now yeah. than it has been in the past, or whether it's just that we sort of have this X-ray into the soul of America and the world which is social media, right? We can sort of see beneath the surface of the kind of the dominant narratives. You know, it used to be that you can only hear crazy people on radio phone-ins. Do you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like you would listen to LBC late at night and crazy people would call up or sometimes in, you know, writing into newspapers. You know, that that kind of crazy person on the radio phone-in or the crazy person who's written a letter to the Daily Telegraph or whoever, that's now t- been multiplied 10 million fold mm. and become the kind of dominant international discourse, hasn't it? Yeah, not exactly for better either. It, you know, it's a big question. I think in many respects, not for better. I think it's not without its good, you know, its sure. positive um, dimensions, right? You know, more, sort of more voices not voices at the table, that metaphor doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but there's definitely like uh, a sort of intriguing, cacophonous, political and cultural free-for-all. Yeah. But that that is in some ways exciting, I suppose. And in certain respects has sort of killed, you know, certain sacred cows or whatever. But I think is a part of it that's just been massively destabilizing. Yeah. You know, but it's the world that we that we live in. Anyway, we could, we went very big on that, didn't we? we? Did. That was a that was a little snapshot of <laughs> a big cultural question. It seems to me though that that's the the exact opposite of the way you are, the way a lot of kind of Twitter people are, because they approach any difficult issue with often an eerie certainty in their opinions or a kind of moral um, certainty. Whereas you're more much more likely to be ambivalent or at least see that there are multiple sides to a story. Yeah, I try not. Like I think um, I heard someone say uh, something recently where 
I think it was Bob Mortimer on a podcast where he says, like, he, he, he tries not to have any opinions, mm. you know, and actually uh, it, there's a quote from, um, I think it's about Henry James where they said, like, his mind was so pure, there was no idea that could violate it. Like, in other words, like, I try not to have um, too many views on anything, you know, in the end, um, and I don't, like, it gives me very little to say on Twitter other than I've had a nice cheese sandwich or having a drink, happy Friday, because I don't really want to be another voice expressing an opinion. I'm not sure what good that does a lot of the time and whether it's the most helpful contribution I can make. It's it's not always easy because, you know, especially where you feel you have, you are personally uh, st- sort of staked in some part of the cultural conversation and, you know, what, in going back for this film, what was weird was that it became quite personal for me because I, there were points when I felt like um, the Tiger King team, the, the makers of Tiger King, were sort of standing in the way of me making my my program by sending legal letters my way and sort of saying, oh, you can't speak to these people. You know, they are exclusively signed up to Tiger King. And at that point there's a temptation to um, to see it through the lens, a sort of selfish lens of, but what about me? And what about me telling my story? Which I think is a mistake, right? Because actually, who cares? Like the audience doesn't care whether or not uh, I've got a legal letter. So I only mention that because, um, yeah, so I I, I have to, I, you're, you're exactly right. I studiously attempt to remain dispassionate and not make easy moral judgments or sort of be complacent in the way that I, I don't know, look at moral questions. Can I use that as an opportunity to segue into your other development of this year, which is your podcast, Grounded? Yes, please. Because on that, again, I mean, podcasting itself is, is a medium that allows that kind of examination and the nuance that Twitter definitely, definitely doesn't um, in the kind of long format. But it struck me that it was, it's a very difficult style, of, sorry, a very different style of interviewing to um, potentially documentary making. You have to drive the bus much more, if I can use that analogy, as opposed to sit on the back row. I'm not sure that's entirely helpful, but you see what I mean? You've really got to set the agenda and- Oh, uh, no, I think that's a good, um, that's a good metaphor because actually, you know, I'm a younger brother and sitting in the back of the car and being driven around and being just sort of the passenger in the family is a very comfortable and familiar role for me. And in many ways, um, you know, I'm a slight, it sounds awful, doesn't it? But I'm a slightly beta person. Like I'm not an alpha in the sense of, come on guys, here's what we're gonna do. Like I'm not the person in the room who's gonna be, if there's a fire, like everyone, stay calm, make for the exit, move away from the smoke. Like I'm, I'm not that person. I might be cracking a joke, right? Yeah. If I'm saying anything or complaining or just meekly following where everyone else is going. But in the journalistic um, realm, that can be an asset because it means that you're not the largest per- personality in the room and you get to experience what's going on in a way that's not excessively disruptive, right? And you, so you're listening and noticing. With a podcast, you have to step up and drive it. And um, it, in certain respects, 
does not come as naturally. Like I find it much less relaxing. I find going on location, making documentaries quite relaxing. Like I enjoy each day you get up, you go somewhere, you talk to people, you go with the flow, you figure out what's going on. When, I, when I've been making Grounded, I've um, each morning when I, ha- I got up thinking like, I, I have to do one of these podcast episodes, I, I've sort of been conscious of kind of almost girding myself for um, for the encounter, right? Yeah. Thinking like, wh- where are we going with this? Have I covered enough of the material? Have I read the books? Yeah. Have I seen enough of the TV shows? Are there any clips and interviews I need to? And just being conscious that I have to step up and, you know, I guess perform for one yeah. of a better term. And um, yeah, it, it, it's quite stressful. And um, it sounds like I'm about to say like, and I don't like doing it and I'm <laughs> not going to do it anymore. That's not really where I'm going with the thought. Like I think at the same time, there's real pleasure in it. And when you're doing it, you get into a sort of fugue state of, ideas exchange of ideas yeah. and um it's quite enjoyable you know but it's performance any performance like i've done uh, tours where i've had to go on stage and talk to thousands of people right and do monologues and mm. this and that it's enormously stressful but you feel good for having done it i completely agree i think um one of the things i liked about your slightly different podcast persona was that I was kind of, as someone who does podcast myself, I was impressed often about the way that you got quite quickly to the elephant in the room, if there was one, particularly in the, in the Ruby Wax episode more recently, yeah. when you kind of went straight into the fact that there was a historic rivalry, maybe even kind of ill feeling from her to you perhaps. Um, and it just gave it that kind of tension when you're sitting at a dinner party or something and someone says the question that everyone's thinking and you go, oh God, this could go either way but I'm going to listen. I'm going to definitely eavesdrop on it. Do you get nervous when you're having to um, maybe slightly just kind of, I don't know, ask the difficult questions? Well, I suppose that's a sense in which it is similar to making the documentaries. And and in fact, um, asking the awkward question is uh, something, yeah, that's, that's it, that the, the podcast has in common with, yeah, the conversations that I have on location, and you know, even with America's Most Dangerous Pets, like I remember thinking early on, like I don't want to be here for ten days, two weeks, and be tiptoeing around. When am I going to ask? Do you think tigers like being in tiny cages? Like you got to get it out of the way, and like you can have a, you can revisit the subject, but early on, I am a believer in attempting to stake out the uh, parameters of of what you're interested in and specifically you know your phrase elephant in the room is one you know i've thought about and reached for um more than once like it's that idea of like you what is the 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 moral question that we are nibbling away at and in the podcasts that applies as well like i would more often than not have a rough idea of what the sort of the thesis or the topic or the the conundrum yeah. that was at the center of uh, what I was curious about, about any given person. And um, with, with Ruby Wax, I suppose part of it was the fact that she said in interviews that she found the fact of my career very upsetting. You know, the fact yeah. of me having, as she saw it, taken her career away from her and you know why tiptoe around it just get it out there and then see where it see where it takes you 
Yeah. But I found it kind of interesting, I guess, because most podcasts aim for a kind of very chummy, almost background level, as you, you might say, kind of comfort listening that you're kind of eavesdropping on on old friends, even if they're not. So I liked I liked that about it, which isn't a question. It's just No, no, I think it and by the way, podcasts are about conversations, right? So questions are um strictly optional. I think um, I think when I get an, not annoyed but impatient as a listener, it's when um, it's when it feels like it's just two mates having a natter. I, I do like a little bit of a sort of sense of it as a, a either a high wire act or a clash or some sense of pushback. Like it's so co- coziness can to my mind is so boring. And like so for me, kind of peak grounded season one was probably the moment. I pushed back at Rose McGowan somewhat and said yeah. something, you know, I did an interview with her. She, you know, she's obviously an actor, a survivor of serious sexual assault. And I pushed back on something she said where I sort of said, look, I, I think sometimes that circle of complicities, you know, the idea that oh, you once uh, worked with such and such serial abuser, that means that you're complicit. Like I slightly yeah. uh, pushed back at that. Yeah. And um, she sort of took flight. Like it was a very, it was almost a, an exquisite sort of flight of eloquence in, in the way that she more or less chastised me for taking yeah. that view or, or, or regarded it as symptomatic of kind yeah. of pu- a, a pu- sort of pusillanimous moral outlook, insufficient courage. Like it's too bad that people aren't more brave. And I thought it's what, like, and then she just, I remember hearing it when it went on Radio 4. I thought, this is amazing. Mm. Like, this is me, by the way, praising my own. Like, I was listening to myself on Radio 4, and I thought what I did was amazing. But actually, it was, it was her. It was just the electricity of yeah. her outrage. And um, But one or two people were like, oh, that made me really uncomfortable. I couldn't listen to that. Or I didn't like it because she's, you know, for whatever reason. And I thought, well, I guess it's not for everyone, but that's yeah. def- definitely a flavor that I enjoy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the whole kind of tone of her voice changed and it felt like she wasn't just chastising you, but kind of chastising all the people who have probably said similar things like that to her in the past. And it felt like it was this great kind of, I don't know, unleashing of a torrent of of feeling. It, it was yeah, utterly it genuine. Was, yeah. And also it's one of those things where, because I have a tendency to appease and placate sometimes. So you say, you know, if you say like, well, but on the other hand, this, and they go like, yeah, I know what you mean, but, yeah. but instead it was like, she sort of doubled down. She went further in the other direction. Like, not only do I not agree with you, now I disagree with you even more kind of yeah. thing. It's like, okay. And then it just sort of went, yeah, anyway, there it is. Talking of of kind of placating and asking the easy or, or difficult questions, I was watching, as everyone in the world was, the Meghan and Harry Oprah saga and i wondered what it would have been like if someone else had been in her place well how do you think you would have approached that interview uh so i'm embarrassed to say that i have not yet watched the interview (laughs) for no very good reason uh other than i don't know i just i haven't had you know in lockdown with the pandemic and kids at home uh, my times i don't watch i've been using twitter and social media very little but in terms of how would i approach so i don't know from what i understand did she approach it like sensitively. And I mean, I think in a situation like that, where you've been privileged with access to an extraordinary pair of people at an extraordinary moment, right? Mm. Um, it's a fine line you walk. You you want them to have a platform to say, 
to sort of feel comfortable to speak about mm. what they're going through. Um, I don't know, like, but but you need to push back a bit. Did she push back much? Not much. I think a lot. Some of the criticism was that it felt very cozy, very. I don't know, like they were old friends, like there was some complicity on her part. It was kind of the opposite, I suppose, of what Emily Maitlis did with with similar access to, to Prince Andrew, where she just gave him enough rope. But maybe Prince Andrew was simply... <laughs> I, You know, with Prince Andrew, he kind of eviscerated himself. It was kind of like interview seppuku, like he disemboweled him. He was like, you know, it's an extraordinary interview. Emily Maitlis asked... Great questions, but it wasn't like she was doing kung fu on him, right? No, no. I mean, he's the one who started talking about, I don't sweat, and, you know, what were the other ones? The Pizza Express in Woking, yeah. which he, that kind of odd detail he didn't need to give. It was all, yeah. It was, you're right, in the fact that she could never have in her wildest dreams imagined that he would give her so many little nuggets. And also the fact that he didn't cut off Jeffrey Epstein because uh, he, Prince Andrew, was too honourable. And in fact, yeah. if he's been guilty of anything, perhaps it's being too honourable. Like, mm. uh, yeah, it was not a masterclass in no. dealing with a, a thorny uh, interview topic. One of the other things I find interesting about Grounded and the way you approach it, which I haven't seen anyone else do, or if they do, they they cut it out, is, is when you check in on people and you say, how's your energy? How are you holding up? Why do you why do you do that at certain moments? Do you kind of notice them flagging over the screen? And <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I do it because it's polite, right? And also, we're taping, recording sometimes for. I mean, the shortest one I've done was probably seventy five minutes, okay. and then one or two of them have been more than three hours. And wow. so, after an hour and a half, people get tired and they're at home. So it's sort of me saying, "Are you okay?" Uh, do you need to go to the loo? Do you need to get a cup of tea? Like when I interviewed Frankie Boyle halfway through, I think either he or I wanted to go and get a cup of coffee. And then halfway through my interview with Helena Bonham Carter, she needed a nap. Yeah, I remember that. So she actually went and had a lie down and then came back uh, sort of refreshed and invigorated. It, so it's the right thing to do, isn't it? Like yeah, in, in terms of um, contributor care, but also... It's another way of expanding the frame as well. And, and yeah. so, you know, I think the conversation, like we were saying at the beginning, the conversation's interesting, but the conversation about the conversation is also sometimes interesting. Yeah. It's like, and also say like, what do you do if someone doesn't want to talk about something? Well, talk about why they don't want to talk about it. Or if the interview's over, talk about why is it over? Like that's the best part of the interview sometimes when someone ends an interview. What, the, the kind of sign-offs, the final goodbyes or the bit after? Oh, well, no, also though, like with Joe Exotic, he rips his mic off. Yeah. That's happened to me not that many times, maybe three, four times. Uh, someone's actually ripped, like Max Clifford, Yeah. when I interviewed him, ripped off his mic. Anytime someone rips off their mic- You know, you've got to the middle- Or end. puts your, their hand over the lens, which has happened a few times- you're thinking, oh, this is going in. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. This is good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there was a documentary on BBC last week, two weeks ago about Max Clifford, and it all came rushing back. What a just, A, I mean, regard, before you get to the terrible things he did, what a bizarre product of his time he was. I can't imagine people letting someone so evidently, I don't know, controlling into 
I don't know, into every celebrity's life. I don't know why any celebrity bothered to associate themselves with him. It was odd. It's absolutely bizarre. And Simon Cowell's on record being asked by Piers Morgan, what was is the best piece or the best decision you ever made or the best piece of advice mm-hmm. you ever followed? And he said, hiring Max Clifford. Wow. And I remember thinking like, really? Might be one of the worst. Because it seemed self-evident to me that it's like paying the Dane Geld, you know, like when you, they used to pay the Vikings not to invade back in Anglo-Saxon times. Like you pay Max Clifford and you're safe for as long as you keep paying. But the minute <laughs> that you're off his books, yeah, then um, he's presumably going to spread your secrets to the world. Also, it was really striking how it was really striking how he seemed to have two main techniques both for embarrassing you, but also for building you up. And they were the same thing. He would basically get pictures of you with an attractive young person. Usually the celebrity was male, so it'd be a young woman. Uh, And he had a a deal with the Spearmint Rhino. So find a dancer from the Spearmint Rhino and, you know, I'll get you in the papers coming out of the premiere of the Smurfs movie and you'll have the front cover of the sport or the, you know, the star. Yeah. But then his way of embarrassing you was to get you linked to um, a woman as well, you know? Like, mm. So when he, when he wanted to embarrass me, he coaxed me down to the Spearmint Rhino and got pictures taken of me with um, one or two of the dancers there. Yeah. So his, his kind of, um, his bag of tricks was, uh, was really just one trick. It seems like, I mean, but just that, even the framing of someone coming out of Spearmint Rhino seems so... It seems like that's 60 years ago, but I guess it's only 15 years ago that maybe that those kind of cultural touch points were important to people. It seems like we've changed a lot, basically, is what I'm trying to say. I think, uh, you know, the question of whether Max Clifford could um, thrive today is an interesting one. I think probably not, right? I mean, I think I the decline of newspapers, the ascendancy of social media and and virality... Yeah. is um has put paid to that those people presumably some version of those people exists but i don't quite know who or what it is or maybe it doesn't and maybe that's the point maybe that's what you know we were saying earlier the cacophony of social media and the way in which it's destructive and um destabilizing of the ship of state like mm-hmm. that the, but the good part is that there's a there's a sort of this multiplicity of voices so yeah. that um actually you can get your version out, you know, and certainly that's how, you know, there's a lot of people who can challenge, you know, fight back. You know, it's really striking how, um, you know, I mean, a lot of things are springing to mind, but so for example, there was a panorama that John Sweeney did about Tommy Robinson yeah. and Tommy Robinson, did you ever see this? And Tommy Robinson turned yeah. the tables and did a sting on John Sweeney and then put up his own program that was about John Sweeney and the BBC that, was on YouTube and probably got more views than yeah. Sweeney's Panorama. And Trump, through Twitter, had an ongoing platform. And, you know, those are two examples that obviously about people on the right being empowered, but there's other ways in which um, I think the left has been empowered. Anyway, it's all a big, complicated mess. It is a big, complicated mess. I think this is the, yeah an understatement. I, I, I'm interested in, in something you touched on there about Max Clifford making the story about you. Um, because one of my favorite episodes of Grounded was the, was the bonus episode, only available, we should say. Oh my God, really? I, I wondered if anyone had ever heard that. Well, I, I did because obviously- it's only half I'm, an hour long. I'm an addict and wanted more. But I, um, I, I just thought that was interesting because it was the first time where your 
uh, eloquent slips a little bit, if you, if Thank you don't you. mind me saying, where you you seem to strain at every answer and and triple question yourself, um, yeah. and you have this knack of kind of inserting four questions. Do I really mean that in every single? Question? I got totally lost. I mean, we recorded that for about two hours, two and a half hours, and it came crunched down to a forty-five minutes in which I still seem lost in my own thoughts, as you say, sort of backtracking on answers, qualifying, second yeah. guessing. And, um, but I suppose that's, that's kind of who, who I am in a way. Like I'm definitely someone who, uh, you know, there's a reason why, uh, for a living, like mm. I talk to other people because I, I, I'm, I'm a hesitant and irresolute and self-questioning person and i i if it was if it was just me talking i i, I you know like i said earlier i'm not without opinions but my p- opinions those that i do have i tend to say, question and then who you know can you imagine you whereas like people who like you you listen to people on the the radio who have talk shows or whatever and they they specialize in certainty mm. and outrage and those are those are the parts of myself that i've attempted to to, to weed out. I mean, you to that effect, you kind of, I think Chris O'Dowd maybe asked you, why is it that you, um, that you do what you do? And you gave a, a humorous answer, I think, about, oh no, he said, what would you ask yourself? I think. No, it was, it was John Ronson that asked oh, that. John Ronson asked that, yeah. yeah. And you he said, said um, what would you ask yourself? And I said, well, that's a bit like asking the manager of a bank how he would burgle his own bank, right? How he would rob his own bank. Because I, I, you know, I, um, it's kind of cheating, you know, like, well, yeah. It's like, where are your weaknesses? What is the part of you that's most ashamed and disgusting and ugly? And, but on the other hand, fair, fair question. And I, so I just talked about how in different ways I um, tend to see my fascination with the dark side or with angst or with the most troubling parts of the human experience as symptomatic of a kind of, I suppose, projection yeah, and, and an attempt to deal with my own darkness, but by proxy. Louis, thank you so, so much for speaking to me. Pleasure. I've got to go. Nice to meet you. Take care, guys. Catch you later. later. Bye. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.